I was surprised to find people working in call centers really excited about technology they were using because, you know, they said it made their job more efficient, made them able to cut out some of the more tedious and boring parts of their job role. But I suppose if you take a step back from that and kind of start to question, well, what's what's the end what's the end game here you know as this technology is learning from the practice of 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 for example call center workers it's learning a lot from those conversations so 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 i suppose you can you know they can enjoy it on a day-to-day basis but you know do they see the bigger picture of what's happening to them Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of CX Insider. In today's episode, Greg and I talk to Dr. Stephen Jeffress, Associate Professor of Public Policy and Digital Government at the University of Birmingham. Today, we will talk about Stephen's research, his discovery and thoughts on technology innovation in the public sector. So stay tuned, enjoy the episode, and don't forget to rate our podcast on your preferred channel. Technology innovation is one of the most common topics discussed in CX Insider. Whether it's the government, healthcare, retail or automotive, the term technology innovation appears several times in each episode. It would actually be interesting to see how many times if we had a tool that could count it. So if you know any, let us know. Anyhow, for today's episode, we invited an academic Dr. Stephen Jeffress, who's been researching how the current tech trends, more specifically artificial intelligence, that aim to rehumanize customer services are perceived by the frontline workers. Another important note, this research is entirely focused on the public sector. So we'll dive into this, but first, let's find out more about Stephen himself. I grew up in Greater Manchester. Um, both my parents worked in the public service. My, my dad worked in probation, my mum worked in social work. And it probably kind of led me towards a, a degree in, in public policy, which is kind of a subset of political science. Um, and I suppose I became really interested in kind of big ideas, really. How, where do ideas come from? Uh, and it led to a, a, a PhD where I explored how big policy ideas shape the way we, we govern cities and um, how these things catch on, how they glue together coalitions of organizations and individuals and I suppose one of the things I was in, in, in doing that work kind of interested in in subjectivity you know because often we sort of see that as not very scientific you know something that you know you want to drive out of, of of science or social science but but really I think what's really important is to understand the way that policymakers and public managers make sense of the things they're expected to deliver so it's more than opinion polling you know it's it's about understanding kind of the the deeper reasons why people hold the views they do and how that shapes their their practice so um, I suppose my work's always been about how on earth do we we measure that how on earth do we study that Um, how do we kind of cut through cut through all of that noise and understand that in in a sort of systematic way so for the last last few years I've been based uh in the school of government in um in Birmingham I also, on top of my research, I lead a, a leadership program for public managers, uh, so working in the public sector and helping them to kind of work through the ways that their, yeah, the way their world is changing really for them and, and, and 
sort of equipping them for the next stage in their careers. Two years ago, Stephen conducted a study and published it in a book called The Virtual Public Servant, Artificial Intelligence and Frontline Work. This research analyzes perceptions of frontline workers on using AI to make them more efficient. This is interesting because most people with whom we talk about artificial intelligence are not frontline workers who come into direct contact with the customer. And if the society is about to transform the way customer service is delivered, shouldn't we, I mean the society, companies, managers, talk with those who currently serve the customer? The work kind of came out of partly out of personal experience um, from from the way that I was experiencing the public sector you know the way I was experiencing uh, the NHS and local government and 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 also the, you know the things I was observing and also the way that my my students were were talking about their their role in digital technology and the things they were getting excited about and it, it struck me that talking about the use of artificial intelligence and related technologies in the future of public service is a really hard conversation to have. I think often it's it's very polarized between those that kind of get really excited about it, how it's going to change everything, improve everything, uh, and those that see it as a, a huge threat to their to their job or to their to their role. Uh, and it struck me that that the that often the people that were missing in those conversations were the front line themselves particularly so um a lot of my work before that had kind of focused at quite a sort of senior level strategic level but it struck me that often what was missing is, is the front line in, in in those conversations and trying to understand really what was happening in the public sector what 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 changes needed to take place in order to enable um ai to be to be sort of used to a, a larger extent um and so yes that was the kind of motivation really for the book AI is one of the technologies that is raising a lot of questions and concerns regarding the future of work. And just like with any other revolutionary technology, it will create disruption, which will make some people more efficient and some redundant. I was surprised to find people working in call centers really excited about technology they were using because, you know, they said it made their job, um, you know, more... uh, more efficient, made them able to you know, cut out some of the more tedious and boring parts of their job role. But I suppose if you take a step back from that and kind of start to question, well, um, what's what's the end what's the end game here? You know, as this technology is learning from the practice of 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 of, for example, call center workers, it's learning a lot from those conversations. So. So, so I suppose you can, you know, they can enjoy it on a day-to-day basis, but you know, do they see the bigger picture of what's happening to them? It's the same thing with doctors, I guess. You know, I see a lot the way that this technology is sold to doctors and doctors' organisations and uh, and large uh, hospital trusts and so on is often to say, look, you know, you didn't do all of this training uh, to be a doctor to then just sit and do paperwork all day, and, the, and a lot of this te- technology can free you up from that work. And that's hugely um, popular with doctors. But at the same time, they're also often very sort of sceptical about, you know, how is this technology uh, interfering in their decision-making processes? So, you know, whilst it can scan thousands of blood tests or cancer, you know, cancer 
uh, scans, you know, MRI scans, you know, that can, you know, that can do a job probably better than even some of the, the finest uh, radi- radiologists um, and also, you know, make fewer mistakes and, and doesn't get tired and can work all night. But at the same time, you know, what's the limit here in terms of the, the decisions that are made around someone's, someone's future and someone's um, treatment plan, you know? So, um, so yeah, you know, it, it's kind of interesting how the technology um, uh, can, can offer a lot to different jobs, but also at the same time can be a threat as well. The study eventually revealed three most common viewpoints occurring across various public sector positions, doctors, librarians, or police officers. What I wanted to do is develop a a method really for trying to simulate uh, what it would feel like to work um, in the future of public service with with AI, but but have those conversations with people that didn't have direct experience of that. So while some of the people I spoke to did, and they were working with some really innovative tools. For other people, it was completely new to them. Um, so much in the same way that your doctor would put you on a treadmill to sort of simulate what it feels like to run for a bus. I was trying to simulate what it was like to, to work in that space. So essentially, it was a, a card sorting exercise, and they had to rank rank these, these different um, statements on, on a card, and then we kind of built it out from there. And then we ran a factor analysis of, of people's rankings to to be able to identify these these viewpoints. So the, the first viewpoint was called the power of interaction. And I suppose what's driving here is really what's probably quite unique about the public service. So kind of in the literature they call it public service motivation kind of so so it was about sort of saying, you know, what's what's driving people to do this public service work and the power of direct interaction with with the customers of those of those services, and and I suppose it's kind of it wasn't that they were completely against the idea of of, of, of AI technologies, but they were nervous that it was going to lead to a greater distancing and greater sort of centralization of services and, and and a dehumanization of services. So it was about uh, really about the power of interaction. The second viewpoint uh, is called Generation Now. And really, the motivation here is really is, is almost an impatience here. This sense of that public sector has been failing customers for many years and has kind of lags behind other industries, you know, like banking and retail, um, and and actually that many of those techniques uh, and systems could be imported into the into the public sector, and a lot of the. Uh, you know, in, in the follow-up interviews with the people who had this this view, it was very much about, you know, my teenage children would think it was crazy the way that we do things in the public sector and we need to do things um, differently. We need to be able to, you know, uh, give people access 24-7 to, to the services that they need. Um, so there's kind of an impatience really in that second one. And then the third one is much more about this, this idea of, of human and machine and the empowerment that comes from that. So it's kind of that augmentation piece around how um, how humans and, and machines can work together. Um, so, you know, really excited about the potential of AI, but also the the, the empowerment that will, will come from that, really. Companies are increasingly limiting face-to-face interactions with customers. On one hand, it is widely welcomed by the younger generations, but many people still prefer seeing a person, even if it takes more time to get things done and is less efficient energy-wise. 
So what is it about the power of face-to-face? -face? Can you really name it? I think there's something of a paradox, really, that face-to-face -face is both becoming, you know, what we're seeing as kind of a premium thing, you know, that, you know, you pay a little bit more or we invest a bit more and you get this kind of premium face-to-face -face service versus something that is, you know, seen as something that's wasteful or inconvenient and something we need to design out of the process, you know, there's sort of lots of unnecessary visits. You know, the, the thought of having to go to a physical location to fill in a form and have something processed when you could, you know, you could potentially just do it through, you know, using your smartphone wherever wherever you like. Um, and, and I think we kind of need to move on from, from that really and kind of think, well, what is it about face-to-face -face that is potentially important? So this kind of idea of like what's measured matters. I think what's difficult with face-to-face -face work is we, it's not very easy to measure what it is that's special about it. Um, but I think certainly our experience of the pandemic has, has been, you know, you know, if we're returning back to the office and seeing our colleagues for the first time in, in, in many months uh, and that feeling you have afterwards where you kind of think that was really nice, you know, I've reconnected with my, with my colleagues, you know, I've been talking to them on zoom for the last two years, but you know, I've got that special a sort of special feeling that you know I've, I've properly reconnected with my colleagues again but it's very difficult for us to put, put a finger on what that actually is what is it that that's special and if you think about services it's the same you know if you have a social worker visiting someone in their in their home they're not just using their their ears and their eyes you know they can they can they can sense whether someone's coping you know by being in that in that physical space and I, and I think if we if we design all of our services that design out face to face because it's you know seen as wasteful or inconvenient, um, I think potentially we, we could lose a lot really and lose lose a lot of connection, a lot of empathy and understanding. So I think I think that's why we need to make sure we still value face to face and there's still a place for it. I think the people that are uh, developing these technologies will often say, well, you know, these things will free up your workers for for more face-to-face -face work with those people that need it. So there is a kind of an optimism there, but I think there's a responsibility of, of senior managers to make sure that that capacity is used appropriately and that they don't just think, well, actually, I could, we, we could use that to make, you know, uh, savings and, and, um, and, and actually just, you know, delete a lot of this face-to-face -face work. So, you know, I, get, I guess it's really important that as we move towards this, greater use of AI, we also value the face-to-face -face interactions as well. As mentioned earlier, younger generation often prefers to get things done digitally without any hassle of talking to a person or going to town. People aged 18 to 25, a generation entering the workforce, were raised in the digital space. It could be assumed that younger people will have even higher demands and expectations in terms of getting the most convenient service. And that doesn't always mean doing things digitally, sometimes talking to a person is a much more convenient, quicker, faster, better way to do things. But how are public sector institutions getting ready for this generation? I think there's, there's, there's often assumption that, an assumption that the, the, there's often an assumption that the, the public sector is kind of lagging, lagging behind, um, you know, other sectors in, in their, in their way, the way they do 
do things and the way they use technology. But I think there's been a sort of a huge acceleration around the use of service design and design thinking, um, particularly in areas like local government and health. Um, I think they have, you know, they have a lot of barriers in the way around, you know, the, the bureaucracy of those of those systems and the way things are done. But if you look at, you know, countries like Estonia, you look at the government digital service in um, in the UK and their, their use of service design and, and really innovative councils like Hackney and Greenwich and so on, that, you know, it, I, I think there's a lot of optimism to be had really around, the, you know, the way that the public sector is going to meet the expectations of, of the next generation. Um, and I think what I've seen as well is a lot more movement between between sectors. I think the days of this kind of career civil servant that never never leaves leaves that that service or or the idea that you know someone who works in banking and retail doesn't work in the public sector I think it is over you know people there's a lot of movement fluid movement between the sectors and I think that's bringing a lot of innovative practice as well um, and I think we sometimes have to be a bit careful saying the private sector has all the answers to this I think I'm seeing you know there's a lot of legacy in in big long established com- companies that you know have the same kind of challenges as government and at the same time there's some really really exciting innovative people within the public sector that are using service design to to really transform services so i'm i'm really optimistic about how things are, are going to be going in the next 5 or 10 years if you are enjoying this episode please don't forget to like share comment or subscribe to the podcast on your preferred channel also don't forget to rate the podcast on spotify apple or google i don't know if any other podcast platforms offer this feature If you are interested in reading Stephen's book, you can buy it on Amazon. The link is provided in the episode description below. That's it from me for today. And enjoy the rest of the episode, which is rapid fire questions. And you will hear from me in the next couple of weeks. What motivated you to study and do research on public policy? I think it was. I do, do you know what I think it was? Uh, it was probably you know growing up with two two public servants as parents and kind of listening to their their stories about you know the work they did and also the um the challenges they faced and how frustrated they got at times and how difficult their job was at times and it it just struck me that you know after decades and decades of trying to you know get the public sector right and and and, and organize things in a particular way in some ways that that project just kept failing you know and um and it's just struck me that there's a there is a role for something called public policy which is the kind of study of how how public service is is designed and organized and evaluated and and it struck me that that would be a really exciting area to work in what do you enjoy the most about teaching and supervising university students <laughs> Well, um I I'm I guess you never stop learning because the questions that they ask the the ideas that they come up with the way they look at things um never stops surprising you and because the way universities work you kind of generally get a new intake every every autumn 
So it kind of it just never stops. It's like this constant refresh of of ideas um, and, and conversations. And and I don't think there's a I don't think there's a job like it really. Um, and I think that's why people that work in universities, you know, love their work. It's it's because they're having these these interactions with students. It's not just about disappearing off into a into a into a library and and writing the next book or the next article it's about that kind of exchange of ideas what do you think is going to change about twitter's public policy now when elon musk is the owner (laughs) i've been thinking about it all day and so uh, just for the benefit of the podcast it's only just been announced well i guess it's been trailed for some time i wonder how how it's going to be possible to you know report a particular user for using you know particular levels of hate speech or um or or or, you know uh behavior towards between others which is kind of unacceptable in any in any sense um you know those kinds of reporting tools that you have within twitter you know i kind of wonder what's going to happen to those really and whether it really is going to be this kind of wild west totally free space say whatever you like it doesn't really matter as long as we know who you are um, I think that's going to be the big change. I mean, it strikes me that that Musk does really want to be able to verify people's identity, but at the same time allow them to say whatever they like. And I'm kind of thinking whether that's going to be an enjoyable place to be <laughs> at the moment. But um, I, I also kind of wonder what's going to happen to... I mean, it's a very popular platform for academics, you know, to cultivate their own careers and promote their work and to to share ideas and I kind of wonder whether or not that's going to be a space where they want to be um, I think it's still too early to say one, one question I had for you Stephen this is another curveball question <laughs> which is if you could interview anyone on a podcast who would you interview I'll tell you I'd like to interview there's a YouTube uh, YouTuber um, uh, that goes by the name of Techmoan and he basically looks at old technology, takes you know old record players apart, and um, uh, has over a million subscribers. Um, and I think there's something really interesting about the the interface between kind of the latest technology and the oldest technology, and kind of understanding how. Things have gone wrong. So he often likes devices that were useless or didn't really work properly and tries to understand why they didn't work and sort of tells a story about them. Um, And I think it's really fascinating work and I think we can learn a lot from it. So, uh, yeah, I think he would make a good interviewee for a podcast.